0: Hi everybody and welcome to this episode of Feminist Coffee Talks. Today we have with us Dr. Alicia Ibaraki. Um, Alicia, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself and your roles at Western Oregon University?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. So like you mentioned, my name is Alicia Ibaraki and my pronouns are she and her. I am an assistant professor of Psychological Sciences in the Behavioral Sciences Division. So within the Behavioral Sciences Division, I'm the faculty member that specializes in clinical psychology. And so the study of psychological disorders and treatments and things related to uh, psychopathology. Um, So the classes I teach, if, you know, you run across, I mean, classes will be classes of kind of the clinical nature. So psychopathology, drug and alcohol assessment, crisis intervention, um, interviewing and appraisal. And then I also teach um, psych 202 introduction to psychology. Um, And then in addition to teaching, I'm also pretty involved with the psychology peer advisors. So that's a program that we have in psychology where students can talk to other students um, to get advice and advising around their uh, academic trajectory at WU.
0: Awesome, you are quite the busy person on campus. Um, and I don't know if you mentioned, but you're also pretty involved with Sci
1: Yeah, I'm one of the faculty advisors for Sci as well. Uh, I know I know you through that. Uh, I really <laughs> enjoy working with students and kind of supporting student organizations. So anytime I can get involved with something like sci or something like peer advising. Um, I'm really excited about that.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so to jump right into the purpose of this podcast, um, which is feminism, what would you say is your personal definition of feminism? And do you feel that that definition has changed over the years, either, you know, just in the time that you've been at Western or from childhood to now, whatever you'd like to speak on?
1: Yes. So I'm going to respond to your second question first. Has my definition of feminism changed over the years? Absolutely. I think when I first started to think about or hear about feminism, you know, I was a teenager and my understanding was very much the, I don't know if this matches what other people's kind of first experience to feminism was, but very much of a like women are equal to men. Women can do anything that men can do, very much like women power, like women are great. And that was how feminism was introduced to me, kind of just more like of a, a pride in being a woman. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being proud to be a woman. Um, but my, my definition has definitely grown and evolved um, right now when I think about feminism And when I think about a lot of the isms, actually, I'm starting to think about it much more as systems and the need to fight against systems. So right now, when I think of feminism, I think about fighting against systems like patriarchy or sexism that systematically oppress people because of their sex or gender. And I've moved towards this focus on systems Because I think that it allows us to not like say that a particular person is bad or good. You know, it's not saying that all women are good and all men are evil. And that's what you have to believe if you're a feminist. Really, it's looking at the system and how when you have something like sexism baked into a system, that systematic oppression that will continue to operate without the need for any individual person to be sexist it's already just there and so fighting against that that like in baked inequity i think that is where i'm thinking about feminism now Um, I like that idea more because the definition allows it to be more inclusive, you know, it allows men to be feminist if they want to help fight against systems that oppress people based off of their sex or their gender Then, to me, I think. They're feminist and I think it also can give men some skin in the game right because a lot of times. What it means to be masculine is coded as what it, it in opposition to what it is to be feminine. So if we say being feminine is being emotional or being weak or being dramatic, well, the, that means in order to be masculine, you have to be the opposite of that. So you have to be stoic or strong or emotionless. And that can hurt men as well. Um, so I think this this whole fighting against systems that oppress people because of their gender identity, that is how I'm thinking of feminism now. Um, and then one more, one more thing, I guess I should also add in how my thinking has changed. You know, after reading the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and others, I definitely also am thinking more about feminism from an intersectional lens. You know, systems don't just affect all women the same way. Women of color have different experiences based off of how things like racism and sexism are baked into the system. You know people with disabilities experience different things based off of um, how ableism is, is baked into the system. So I think taking a more expansive look at it and in including intersectional identities in looking at the ways that
2: systems operate is also a direction that I've moved. Wow, thank you. Um, so you kind of already answered the first question, but having your definition of feminism being kind of systemic, how do you see, um, your personal feminism being played out in the classroom as a professor and educator?
1: Yeah. So I think that being feminist doesn't just mean thinking about things in a certain way Um, it also there has to be some sort of action involved too like engaging in action to fight against systems not just thinking about systems so I think there does have to be an active component in it and in order for the work to be sustainable and in order for you to continue to take action and not get burnt out Um, I do think that you have to think about where you have areas of influence and power relative to other aspects of your life and areas that you'll be able to successfully kind of leverage that power to do something. And so I actually think this podcast is a good example where the two of you, you actually have relative positions of power due to your positions in Abby's house right? That, that gives you a little bit of a platform and gives you some power to, to, to influence things. And, you know, you have leadership within this podcast. So you have control over what topics you cover and which perspectives you invite onto the show and which perspectives, you know, you share amongst your listeners. So I think that's a place where you have power. And so going back to your question, I think the classroom is a space where now that I'm uh, an assistant professor, I have more power than I did before when I was just a student. And so that is a place where I do think about how to take action in terms of fighting against systems. So I guess I'll give you examples. So I'm a psychologist and I'm a scientist. So I teach based off of the evidence. I, I teach based off of what we know about scientific studies. I'm not just pushing like my ideas. I want to share you know what the science actually has to say. But I can also pay attention to and point out who are in who, who's included in the studies that we talk about and who's left out of those studies and how that impacts the generalizability of our knowledge. So I think an idea that many people are familiar with, whether or not they are a psychology major, is the idea of fight or flight. Like, have you heard about that? Like when you get stressed out, our natural instinct is to, you know, fight or flee. And this is a natural stress response. Um, But that research was developed primarily with with male samples, Um, even, the rats in most studies are male. You know, if they have lab rats um, because of the way that they breed lab rats and how they want genetic similarity, like they're all, they're all male. And a study came out recently in um, Nature, which is a prestigious scientific journal that actually showed that the cells of male and female mice, so not rats, but male and female mice respond differently to stress, right? So if, you have cells responding differently to stress based off of, of, of sex, and you're only doing your research on one sex and you're assuming that generalizes to everyone. Well, is that a fair assumption? So there's this alternate theory about the fight or flight response um, that has some evidence behind it that's called tend and befriend. And that's, that's an alternate explanation to how women might respond to stress instead of fighting or fleeing, they might, gather allies around them and provide care and try and protect themselves through numbers. And so, you know, in my classes, I make sure to teach both. I'm not only teaching about women or saying that women are better, um, but I'm recognizing that a system might default to men as being like the norm when we study things. And I'm discussing what that means in terms of the science and,
2: you know, what conclusions we can or should be drawing. And you talked about this a little bit too. Um, does being a feminist to you look different in the classroom versus in your personal life or outside of the classroom? And could you elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: Yeah, I, I, to me, the way that I think about it in terms of figuring out where you have the ability to make an impact, where you have relative positions of power and where you can do something to try and push the system. um, I I think that that applies in and out of the classroom. So out of the classroom, my thinking is very similar, where in my personal life do I have a scope of influence
0: and can I do something in that space? That's great, thank you. Um, And prior to this episode, we did a little bit of research looking through the research you have done um and we saw that's often centered around this desire to reduce healthcare disparities and then also increase the accessibility of quality mental health care to ethnic minority populations with then a particular focus on Asian Americans. So we were wondering in what ways do your personal identities connect you to this research?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I do identify as Asian American and um, to some extent, people refer to this as like me search, which is doing research on topics in which you see yourself and your identity reflected. And I think that's true. And I think that's fine. I think you can still do really rigorous, high quality research about topics that you relate to um, because research is a really long and arduous process, and you have to have an interest in your topic to keep motivated, right? And I think that people naturally do have interests in topics that they see impacting themselves or their communities, um, which is certainly what I feel like when I'm studying factors that impact how and if Asian Americans seek mental health treatment and the type of treatment that they receive. so yeah, I, I definitely think my identity is reflected in my research. And I also think that's a great benefit to diversifying who is conducting research. Uh, more topics will just get covered that way and we'll have a stronger scientific foundation.
0: Yes, I, as a research assistant and psych student, I completely agree with that. Um, how does a lack of mental health care impact our marginalized communities?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a I think a big issue that needs to get addressed. Um, Multiple research studies, large scale research studies like epidemiological studies, studies conducted by like the Surgeon General, um, they've found that racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to seek professional psychological help. And then of those that do, they're less likely to receive high quality evidence-based care. And also they're more likely to drop out of treatment prematurely. So before they've received what's considered to be kind of a a full course of treatment. So they're, they're not receiving the same benefits. Um, And so I think that does definitely impact communities and our, country is is diversifying, you know, by, I think 2050, we're expected to be a majority minority country, meaning that more than 50% of the population will be made up of ethnic and racial minorities. And if that's the case, and if that large percent of the population is not receiving quality mental health care, I that, that is going to have an impact, I think, on our entire society. Um, and I think there are, are multiple reasons for why racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to seek help and to get, um, get help. But yeah, that, that, I think that's an important issue that we need to pay attention
2: to in, in the field of psychology. Moving on to deeper topics, racial justice has been neglected by the university, including Abby's house specifically this year. And so we wanted to reach out to you and also ask um, what resources can we provide as Abby's house and how can we be conscious when interacting with the students that Abby's house and Western serve?
1: I think that's a great question. And, you know, thank you for asking that. in terms of therapy, in particular, like if you're asking about, you know, people who come to Abby's house, maybe you're recognizing that you you under you've heard, you know, the statistic that I was just saying that um, racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to seek mental health care, but you know that that is something that might be needed, especially now during you know the pandemic where people's mental health is not at its best. Um, This isn't a resource per se, but an important idea that I think you as advocates at Abby's House can share with anybody that comes through the door. It doesn't just have to be a racial or ethnic minority, Um, but as a therapy client, you have a right to a therapist with whom you are comfortable and with, with a therapist that respects and Honors all aspects of your identity that you feel are important to you. Like, just like, period, full stop. Like, if you're going to therapy, you should have that in your therapist. And it might be that you don't find that person in your first try. You might have to try a couple of different therapists. Um, You might need to try someone out for a session or two. But if it doesn't feel like a good fit, I think an idea that I would hope that. You, you all in Abby's house could, could share with others is, don't stay with them. There's somebody out there who's a good fit for you and you just need to find them. Don't feel embarrassed about having a conversation with your therapist who is not a good fit for you um, and ask them to help you find someone who is a better fit. It's completely okay to ask a therapist for referrals. Um, it's completely okay to say, even though it might be uncomfortable, this, this just doesn't feel like a good fit for me. Can you help me find someone who is, you know, X, Y, or Z and an ethical counselor should be able to help you do that. They should be able to help you find someone else. And if they're not willing or able to do that, then they're not doing their job. And you probably don't want to be going to them anyway. Um, so I think, I don't know how common knowledge this is for people that like, you don't have to just stick with the counselor that's assigned to you. In the counseling center too, you go to the student health and counseling center. If you get a counselor that just doesn't feel right, you don't have to keep seeing them. And just giving people that knowledge and that permission and helping them figure out how to advocate for themselves to get what they need. I think that could be a really important uh, resource that, that Abby's house
2: provides.
0: Also, even how that same logic applies to academic advisors. As much as, you know, an an academic advisor isn't a counselor, they are in some ways and they also should recognize and respect your identities. And and if, as a student, you feel that that person is not a good fit for you and you don't want to spend the next, you know, one to four years with them, there's ways to to make that change. And,
1: you know, Um, I think there's this space and the size of the space is different from person to person, but there's this gap between like intellectually understanding that like, I don't have to stick with this person that doesn't fit me. And then actually like doing something and saying something and taking the steps needed to end up with somebody who is a better fit. And I, that, that space can be really large where you might intellectually know it, but you don't, you're not able to act on it for, for whatever reason, for, for a variety of reasons. And I suspect that as advocates in Abby's house, part of your training and part of your expertise and where you might have kind of some, some things to offer is like helping people move from a space of like, this doesn't fit my needs, but I don't know how to move towards where it is I need to be and giving them those tools. So I think you might be well positioned
0: to to help with this sort of thing. Yeah, we could definitely help as advocates, um, like facilitate that transition. So when we were emailing with you to set up this recording session, you had mentioned that in light of the Atlanta spa shooting, you've been doing a lot of reflection lately about not only what it means to be an Asian American, but also what it means to be an Asian American woman. Um, Would you be able to expand a little bit more on those reflections? Yeah, I would,
1: I would love to. Um, And, you know, we're, we're speaking in May, which is AAPI heritage month. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of focus put on Asian American issues right now. And so that has been prompting some reflection. And one of the thoughts I was having was that I think, Asian Americans hold a really interesting position in race relations in the United States, which is predominantly, when we think about race relations, we predominantly think about it as like black and white. Um, and so the position Asian Americans hold is interesting because I, I think that that this position changes depending on the needs of whoever is in power. So. Sometimes when it fits their needs, Asian Americans are like the good Asians. And this is where things like the model minority myth come in. This is where people cite statistics about how educated Asian Americans are and their income levels and how well they're doing. And Asian Americans will be held up to champion, say like democracy over communism, you know, like, look how well they're doing here in the United States. Or they will be held up to demonstrate that racism is not a problem in the United States because, well, if Asians can do it, then other racial minorities should be able to do it if they just apply themselves. And there are lots of reasons why that is inaccurate and overly simplistic um, that I won't get into right now, but Like sometimes Asian Americans are held up as like the good uh, minority race. But the thing is, when it's not convenient for us to be the good race, all of a sudden we become the bad Asians and we're spoken about as vectors of disease or we're spoken about as taking jobs away or that, you know, in the wake of 9-11, South Asians and Muslims, you know, we were branded as terrorists. Um, Oftentimes I think Asian Americans are used as the convenient butt of jokes and Asian Americans are often not truly seen as fully American. And I think these two different portrayals of Asian Americans, it, it goes back and forth depending on the needs of whoever's in power, however they need to use us. And so during the pandemic, you know, the bad Asian is how the powers wanted to use Asians, right? Like we have this disease that's going around and it's very convenient to blame it on China and to just say that, you know, Asians are bringing these diseases over and and they're bad. And I think this bad Asian portrayal has led to increasing levels of violence against Asians right now. Um, But the, the good Asian story is still also in the back of many people's minds. And I think many Asian Americans have also internalized that idea and just hope that if we're just good enough, if we're quiet enough, if we don't make waves or cause trouble and we keep our heads down, eventually we'll go back to be seen as like being, being good and we'll be left alone. Um, and so I've been really thinking about that and how that intersects a lot with what women are taught, right, to just be quiet, be good, um, and you won't have any trouble and you'll you'll be seen as kind of like good and safe. And we know this isn't true, right? Asian Americans aren't safe right now and women aren't safe. Well, I don't think, you know, we've ever been fully safe as either. Um so for me when the Atlanta Spa shooting came in um it made me think of some of the kind of bad Asian stereotypes that are really specific to Asian or Asian American women and these are stereotypes around being promiscuous or impure or exotic or hypersexualized like temptresses um and a lot of these ideas came out of encounters with um when the what that the Western world had with Asia, with how, how women were used like during military occupation or colonization, like women were treated a certain way. Um, but I, I think that's where those ideas came from. And so for me, when I was looking at the Atlanta shootings, it wasn't just like an Asian hate thing. And it wasn't just a misogynistic women hate thing, um, but it very much targeted that intersecting idea that people hold about like what Asian women are and how they can be you know, especially because it was tied to, to spas or massage parlors, that there's this undercurrent of what Asian women are in terms of being temptresses and seductresses and hypersexual. And I think that initial lack of recognition of that intersecting identity from like authorities who are talking about how, oh, we don't really think this is, has anything to do with, with race or or gender, like, that was problematic and i think that was really hurtful to a lot of people who recognize that pattern
2: we'll say it later but thank you so much for being willing to answer these questions and being so authentic in the way that you do answer them um so we talked about the atlanta spa shooting and this whole pandemic specifically just feels like it can feel like every time you wake up, there's a new tragedy. Um, And eventually that does start to weigh on you. And so we're wondering if you have any words of wisdom you would like to share with the Mu, the Wu community, specifically with those people who are trying to process and grapple with the facts of racial oppression.
1: Yeah, I think that it is really important to have support, um, to have someone or multiple people who you can talk to that won't question the validity of your feelings or the validity of your experiences. And it doesn't have to be someone with whom you share a racial or gender identity um, at all, but... You, you do need to find this person or these people who kind of are willing to, the, the term that we use sometimes in therapy is kind of like bear witness to what you're experiencing and just be there to say, yeah, I, I see this happening. Yes, this sucks. Like, no, you're not overreacting. This makes a lot of sense. And just to have that community or person. Um, and if you can't think of anyone who can do this for you, you know, this is what counselors do. They listen without judging. You can you can literally, you know, find someone whose job it is to to do this with you and to, to be there with you. Um, so, yeah, I think the biggest word of wisdom I would have is it's really important to have social support, however you can find it.
0: I completely agree. Um, and do you feel as though your role as a, a professor and like a support person to students has changed over the pandemic? Yes and no.
1: Um, I feel like one of my primary jobs as a professor is to provide a high quality educational experience to my students and that hasn't changed. That's still my, my goal and my mission. I've had to adapt some of my methods for sure but, but the goal is the same. So I don't think that's changed. Um, I I do feel, and perhaps it's because I teach classes of a clinical nature, you know, where we're talking about addiction or psychopathology or trauma, that I have taken on a little more of an emotional support role. Um, And I think this was true, especially earlier on in the pandemic, where everyone was much more kind of isolating and locked down and maybe I might be one of the only people that they actually interacted with given kind of everyone's isolation. And so I was just the person they were seeing. Um, and, but I, I do think that's lessened as we've become more used to and adapting to, to living life
2: the way we are now. Speaking of the classroom, again, do you have a favorite course you like to teach at WU?
1: Is it a cop-out to say that there's aspects that I love about all the classes that I teach? Um, I, there, there, yeah, there are parts of every class that I really love, so I'm always excited about all of my classes, um, but I guess if there's one class I might want to shout out, Um, It would be, I think, Psych 423, Interviewing and Appraisal. Uh, It's a smaller class. So I really get to know the students well in this class. And it's very hands-on and applied and skill-based. The goal of the class is to develop interviewing skills, actually. And so uh, you walk away from the class, I think, with some really useful and practical tools. So that's a fun one.
0: I still wish I had had the time to take that class at Western, but that was the one that I missed. Um, and then going back to your graduate work, you went to U of O, correct? Yes. So what was your favorite course to take as a doctoral student while you were there?
1: You know... So I knew you were gonna ask me this question. And so I actually reached out to some of my grad student friends. Uh, we're still friends, we, we talk all the time. And I was just like, just curious, what were your favorite classes of UFO? And it was actually kind of funny. Um, all of our absolute favorite classes happened to be a variety of different PE classes. Um, mine was swimming, another friend's was golf, another friend's was rock climbing. Another friend's was Zumba, and another friend's was ballet. And and I, I will give you the name of like an academic class that I took too, but I just thought it was really funny and maybe worth mentioning that probably what we liked was that we were intentionally building in kind of balance into our lives. Like this was a time in our day that we had carved out and set aside to focus on. Something different besides school, and you know, it was something that strengthened our bodies and made us feel good, and we had fun with. And I, I just thought it was interesting that we all really liked our PE classes. Um, but in terms of my favorite academic class, I took a couples therapy practicum in toward the end of my time at the University of Oregon, where we learned how to do couples therapy. And that was a really fun class for me. I really liked a lot of the ideas that we talked about in that class. I liked working with couples um, in therapy and looking at the dynamics between two different people. And I learned a lot. Um, And my my professor was very uh, sex positive and gender affirming. And it was just a great environment to, to learn about couples therapy.
0: That's awesome to hear. Um, I'm going to graduate school for couples therapy. So I'm glad to hear that was so uh, awesome for you. And thank you so much for being here, Dr. Ibaraki. That um, ends our questions for today, but we just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to sit down with us. And hopefully we can invite you back next year when some more things are in person. So we actually have, you know, live student audience Um, but you've been great and I'm really happy that we're able to um, honor uh, AAPI month in this way. So thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me and for yeah making this space to talk about um, some of these really important issues.